you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com Goals24. That's Chime.com Goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll look at the phenomenon that's happening all over. Young people are voting for old socialists. Why is that? Sarah Leonard has some answers. Also, Henry David Thoreau has always been a hero of the left in America. He pretty much invented civil disobedience, and he was a fierce and radical opponent of slavery. But our man Thoreau has taken a beating lately. Jedediah Purdy will explain. First up, Trump care. It's really unpopular. It seems to be the most unpopular legislation in the history of polling, maybe in the history of America. A recent poll says only 17% of Americans approve of the Republican health care plan to replace Obamacare, known as the American Health Care Act. Only 42% of Republicans approve. That's well below half. The Senate is now preparing to take up the American Health Care Act. We're told that Mitch McConnell is trying to complete work on the bill and bring it to the Senate floor next week by June 30th, they say. For comment, we turn to George Zornick. He's the nation's Washington editor. George, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Well, the House bill, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, would cut 23 million people from their existing insurance under Obamacare. How does the Senate bill compare? What's in the Senate bill? Uh, I have absolutely zero idea. But, but George, you're the Washington editor of the nation. Aren't you supposed to know what's in the Republican health care bill in the Senate? I, I think if the system were functioning as it normally does, uh, yes, I certainly would. But this completely insane and I think unprecedented thing, at least back to World War One, is happening where very, very, very few people know what's in the Senate bill. There are I'm sitting right now uh, in our office on looking out over Constitution Avenue at the Senate office buildings. And inside those buildings, there's probably somewhere around 20 to 50 people who know what's in the Senate bill. Um, it's being crafted by 10 senators, I imagine a handful of their staffs know what is in it. And and those, you know, 30 some people across the street are making decisions for one sixth of the entire U.S. economy, things that will affect millions and millions and millions of people for on a very critical issue. Can they afford the health care that they need? And they're keeping these details close to the vest. I don't think anyone I've talked to in D.C. has ever seen anything at all like this. But frankly, I have to say it's it's kind of working. You haven't because there is no Senate bill. 
There are no details of the Senate bill. The backlash has been fairly muted. I mean, every day people are are tweeting out pictures, you know, front pages across the country. There's nothing about the health care fight in it. The oxygen is being sucked up by Russia and whatever else. But but frankly, let's just say, I mean, the, the GOP strategy is, is kind of working as of right now. Well, there have been some groups that are uh, mobilizing against what they have heard rumors and reports of what might be in the bill. For example, the American Lung Association and more than 100 similar groups, we uh, are told, have been lobbying against some of the Republican proposals to cut Medicaid. But the American Lung Association, isn't that just a front for Bernie Sanders? (laughs) Hardly. You know, I think you've seen a lot of medical groups kind of tearing their hair out over these massive changes. And look, we we kind of, I mean, it's very, very valuable and necessary to know the details of the Senate bill. But broadly speaking, we know what it is because we know what the House bill is. It's, It's essentially repealing all of the taxes that were placed on the wealthy uh, in the Affordable Care Act. And in order to finance this essentially massive tax cut, They are taking the money from Medicaid. They are taking the money from subsidies that help people afford insurance. And so in the broad strokes, I think it's easy to know that that whatever comes out of the Senate is is going to be a a dreadful bill and and essentially a giveaway to the rich financed with the health care of a lot of Americans. Well, you say the Republicans have have kept their bill a secret. Is that really any different from the way the Democrats handled Obamacare? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, you can you can criticize some of the process of how the Affordable Care Act was passed, so particularly when it came to the end game on, on Christmas Eve there. But look, I'm sure you remember, John, I remember it quite well. The Affordable Care Act was debated for eight or nine months. Uh, the bill text was out there. There were endless hearings in the Senate Finance Committee led by Max Baucus. You know, there was that famous meeting that Obama held at the at the White House where he invited Paul Ryan and all the Republicans to come and, and talk about the health care bill. I mean, we knew what was in it. We knew what it was going to do. Um, it was debated at, at town halls and, and Senate and House committees, just sort of ad nauseum. So way, way, way different. I mean, uh, it's so funny because uh, funny maybe is not the wrong word. It's, it's darkly funny how much Republicans complained and complained about the process of Obamacare, how it was passed. The, the phrase they always use is, oh, it was crammed down the throats of the American people. It was crammed down the Republicans' throats. If that was cramming it down their throats, I think we would need to consult a proctologist to accurately describe <laughs> what is happening here with, with the Republican plan. Yeah, I read somebody counted there were 53 hearings about Obamacare in the Senate Finance Committee alone. That's not what we're seeing now. Uh, I want to talk about Republican politics uh, in Congress a little bit. We know there are divisions among the Republicans. We saw that in the House there was a the moderate, the so-called moderate Republicans, uh, many of whom are vulnerable to uh, Democratic challenge in the midterm elections next year. Uh, there are the hard right uh, members of the so-called Freedom Caucus. 
what happened in the end in the House was that the moderates basically folded and agreed to a bill that cut 23 million people from the health insurance they currently have uh, or will have under Obamacare. Uh, is something like that going to happen in the Senate? We hear there are also moderates in, in the Senate, and the count in the Senate is a lot closer. What is it? If two Republicans vote against this, uh, whatever the bill turns out to be, uh, it won't pass. Have I got that right? Well, if two, no, I think with two Republicans, it still will pass if, and assuming this will be true, Mike Pence will come in yeah. and save the day. So they need three. So they need three. And, and you know, McConnell probably will hand out two free passes to vulnerable, potentially vulnerable Republican senators who want or need to vote against it. Um, we've seen him, we've seen him do this before, and I have no doubt that that will happen. Never mind the terrible optics of basically a deadlock Senate and Mike Pence coming in and putting his own political capital on casting the tie-breaking vote. But yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, you're absolutely right. There's been this sort of play acting where the moderates in the Senate, um, people like Rob Portman in Ohio and, and Shelley Moore Capito in West Virginia and, and Dean Heller out in Nevada, Susan Collins up in Maine, um, are saying, well, you know, we have grave concerns about this and, and we just don't know. Funny enough, their concerns mainly centered around the reductions in Medicaid, which would hit a lot of those states very hard. I mean, you think about West Virginia and Ohio. But somehow from, from the little leaked sort of scuttlebutt that we've seen in the Washington press over the past week or so, it seems that the Senate bill has actually made the Medicaid cuts deeper than what they were in the House. You know, how that has happened, we just don't know because none of this has happened out in public view. Whatever is happening, those moderates seem to be poor negotiators. But what I predict will happen, uh, and we'll have to see, is that these moderates will, you know, say they're disappointed in the bill. They don't know if they can vote for it. They will extract some kind of minor symbolic concession, perhaps one that, that benefits their state in particular, and then they will claim that they approved the bill and they can now happily vote for it and, and they will go ahead and follow the party line. The House passage of their repeal and replace bill is pretty much the only thing Trump can count as a major win in Congress for the agenda that he ran on. You'll remember he was so excited the day it passed, he invited all the House Republicans to a celebration in the White House Rose Garden. Were you invited to that? I most certainly was not. I, I suppose I could have applied for a daily pass to the White House. But I think a lot of progressives, liberals had a problem with how Obama went about health care reform in the sense that he invited a lot of Republican buy in. And he and Republicans yes. actually significantly, significantly amended the final product of the Affordable Care Act. And then, of course, turned around and voted no on it anyway. I mean, the fact that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have never once never once given Democrats an opportunity to even amend or offer their two cents um, to this version of health care, you know, reform. I'm making air quotes here, quote unquote reform, um, that they from the beginning have outlined a strategy where they will seek no input whatsoever from Democrats. I think it's something that Democrats should remember if and when they have to turn around and, and fix the, the ruins of the health care system. Um, that will exist if, if indeed this Republican plan passes. There's one footnote to that Rose Garden celebration of the House passing they are, their horrible repeal and replace bill, which is that Trump uh, commented on it last week. And what is he saying about it now? He, he told people at the White House that it was too mean. It was mean. I, 
He said yeah, it was yeah. mean. This was his one great triumph. So what do we make of that? You know, I, it's it's rather confusing. I think one thing that has been true uh, this whole time is that Trump, from his public statements and interviews, I think literally does not know what the AHCA does. Like, I would love for a, a reporter who gets close to Trump, and that doesn't happen much these days, but, but to ask him a very simple question about a major element of the Republican health care bill, just, just a, a question about policy. What does it do to Medicaid? What, you know, what percentage is this or that? I think he doesn't know. I think there's one track where his advisors and Paul Ryan are telling him how great, you know, their bill will be and Obamacare is gone. And maybe Trump really believes all this stuff that it's just wrecked the economy and sent premium soaring and all this. And then he turns on cable news, which is, as we know, where he gets most of his information and worldview and sees all this stuff about how terrible the bill is and, and perhaps on some level feels conflicted. You know, on Tuesday this week, uh, he once again said that the Senate bill needs more heart. That was his, actually Sean Spicer said that from the podium, wow. that, the, that, the, that the president believes that the health care bill must have heart. What does that mean? I have no idea. So either Trump doesn't know what's in the bill and is just sort of responding to whoever he talks to, or this is just kind of a weak sort of PR gloss on well, it needs to have heart. And then when it comes out, they'll say, well, it does have plenty of heart. And here I am happy to sign it. Every week we say the Democrats can't just complain that Trump is terrible. They also have to come up with good alternatives. Of course, during the primaries, Bernie Sanders argued that Democrats have to guarantee health care to all as a right through a Medicare for all single payer program. Bernie reiterated that last week in a New York Times op-ed. And I saw that uh, Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson wrote this week that sooner or later, we will have universal single-payer health care in this country sooner if Republicans succeed in destroying Obamacare, later if they fail. I wonder if you agree, and I wonder where we stand right now on single-payer. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, look, first of all, it's always been true that single payer has been very popular with voters, more so than you would would realize watching sort of the the beltway conversation, even among Republican voters. I think Democrats are learning a couple lessons here. Number one is, is, as we mentioned, you know, this idea of inviting Republicans to mold a significant portion of, of a health care bill is basically going to backfire on you. They're, they're going to change it, then they're going to vote against it, and they're going to bash you over the head with it for seven years and then scrap the whole thing. So on a, on a process level, I think they're learning that. But what I think Democrats are also learning is looking at the, the very real problems with Obamacare and the things that created a lot of legitimate backlash when companies started pulling out of the exchanges and leaving not enough options or when uh, the the premiums were going up too high or or whatever, you know, a lot of that was coming in the section of the Affordable Care Act that was basically based on conservative principles that was based on the Mitt Romney plan in Massachusetts. The, the Medicaid expansion has been very popular, has straightforwardly helped a lot of people. It's what is if if GOP moderates do end up killing the Senate bill, it will be because of Medicaid concerns. Um, so I think Democrats are looking at this and going, okay, well, what was essentially an expansion of, of single-payer health care and the Medicaid expansion is popular. This sort of like Rube Goldberg system of health care exchanges and a highly regulated marketplace 
that we we basically did as an ideological stop for Republicans is failing or is giving us at least a lot of trouble. You know, I, I think that's a lesson they can apply going forward, even if it's not, you know, 100 percent full single payer next time the Democrats pass something. Is it something where there's a robust, robust public option or, you know, the, the Medicaid age is lowered and the or, sorry, the Medicare age is lowered and the Medicaid threshold is raised. They're sort of gradually getting us to a single payer system. I think and hope that that is a lesson they are learning right now. George Zornick, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, George. Thanks for having me. It's happening all over. Young people are voting for old socialists. Why is that? For some answers, we turn to our young people correspondent, Sarah Leonard. She's a senior editor at The Nation. She also writes for The New York Times and Dissent. Sarah, welcome back. Thank you. Well, I know young people here in the United States were excited about Bernie Sanders, who is a socialist and also an old person. What were the numbers here about Bernie and young voters? Well, Bernie overwhelmingly won voters under 35. And in fact, he won more of those voters than Trump and Clinton combined. He won completely overwhelmingly with white voters and just over half of young voters of color. So there was a difference there, um, but very different from his total failure with older voters of color. There's an interesting set of statistics, but basically he overwhelmingly won young people. And you have suggested that this is not a case of American exceptionalism. Young people recently have been voting for people like Bernie in some other places. I think many of your listeners may have been following the British elections in which uh, Jeremy Corbyn increased Labour's vote share when it was expected to decline under someone as far left as him. And he also overwhelmingly won young people. And not just that, they were really his foot soldiers on the trail. In France, we saw strong youth support for Mélenchon. Um, and in even countries like Greece and Spain, we've seen youth support for quite left parties in those cases uh, with younger faces, but Syriza and Podemos. And Corbyn, let me just emphasize, uh, was a much bigger phenomenon, much bigger among young people than Bernie was in this country. Because, of course, Corbyn was the nominee of the National Party, the leader of the National Party. We have young Republicans, at least I've heard we have young Republicans, but really there are virtually no young Tories in, in Britain. Have I got that right? That's absolutely right. What's really remarkable is we saw the leadership of Corbyn increase registrations with the Labour Party overall. So the Labour Party has grown under him. And a lot of that is young people registering with the party to vote because they actually see a candidate who offers them a real choice. They're really excited about him. And whereas before belonging to the Labour Party might have been sort of an obligation, now it feels very exciting. How are you defining young? When when I was young, Jerry Rubin said, don't trust anyone over 30. Under Jerry Rubin's rule, would, would young people trust, for example, you? So I'm, I'm 29. I'm just on the verge of being totally unworthy <laughs> and also no longer your youth correspondent. Um, <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm running a risk here. But... Uh, so sometimes sort of young people, often in polls, it's kind of sort of under 35. And I was mostly talking about under 35s, depending on how you count. Many of those people are millennials, of course. 
And in the U.S. right now, the biggest demographic block right now is millennials. So I'm mostly talking about this generation that has been portrayed often in the media as being sort of apathetic, lazy. We live in our parents' basements. We're all about ourselves. I'm sure you've heard this. Yes, um, I have. In a sense, this gets said about every generation, of course. But in this case, something that I think we're seeing reflected in these elections is that young people, for example, are not sleeping on their parents' couches or in their basements because they're lazy. They're doing it because the job market sucks. And so when millennials are offered some sort of real alternative that seems like to offer a solution to austerity, a crap job market, downward mobility in general, people actually get really excited and do the things they're always told to do, like go vote. You know, there's a, another view that young people are inherently radical and that they move to the right as they get old. Do you think that's what we're seeing now? I actually don't. There's a fair bit of data that people's political preferences are actually formed while they're young. So late teenager, early 20s are very important formative years for your political perspective. And I think it's fair to say that millennials are experiencing a different period of political formation than, say, Gen X. And in the case of millennials, we're seeing that people came to political consciousness after 89, right? So no one's thinking about the big communist threat, right? Or the socialist threat. But people came to political consciousness more around the time of the recession in 2008. So people have a very vivid sense of Wall Street and capitalism as sort of big, scary forces that are uh, keeping them from getting jobs, homes, starting families, etc. So I think that's actually a, sort of the crucible that is forming the political consciousness of this generation. And of course, it will change somewhat over time. But I think that's actually the generational mentality. The other issue that has been emphasized by socialist candidates, both Bernie in the United States and Corbyn in Britain, is a free college. Yeah, well, America currently has a trillion dollars of student debt. That's not nothing. Britain doesn't compare to us on that front. Right. Um, they have increased tuition in recent years. And so they're starting to see lots of college students in debt or young people who are afraid they can't afford college, which for them is a real shock. For us, it's just a worsening situation. You know, there's a real contradiction, I think, for a lot of young people in that you are told to go to college, that that's the right thing to do and that that's the way you'll get a job. And that is a fact. In America, certainly, you are far less likely to be employed if you do not have a college degree. And so you go and you do that thing you're supposed to do, and then you're suddenly in absolutely insurmountable amounts of debt. And so it's really reasonable from an economic perspective that young people would want free college. That's actually sort of delivering the promise that is held out to young people by everyone from parents to guidance counselors to the marketing of colleges themselves. So I think that was was absolutely formative in the UK around Corbyn. You saw a lot of young people going to the polls talking about free tuition. One thing that I think is sort of funny is I saw some analysis after the election that sort of described Corbyn as bribing young people with free college. And so there's this funny contradiction where if we if we show up and vote on our material interests, we're somehow being bribed. 
But when we don't, we're told we're just practicing identity politics or something like that. And so what I think we're seeing is actually a relatively healthy and straightforward political consciousness on the part of young people that's still being looked at by a lot of commentators as if it's odd. You know, we have two two phenomena about youth voting in the United States. One is the enthusiasm for Bernie. The other is low turnout. The young people historically in the United States for decades have had the lowest rate of turnout of all age groups and old people have the highest rate. Do you have any ideas about why this might be? Yeah, there are a number of reasons. One small reason I'll just mention is that, of course, many states have made it hard for college students to vote, actually. So if you want to register where you go to college versus where your parents live, um, voting law has actually intentionally made that difficult because young people do tend to vote left of center. Further, on a sort of meta level, I would say there's been some fantastic research. I mean, famously, this big Princeton study that came out a few years ago that show that ordinary people's preferences, ordinary voters' preferences, and the preferences of their institutions, so things like labor unions, have a negligible effect on policy outcomes compared to the policy preferences of wealthy people and their institutions, like lobbyists, corporations. So I don't think that people are stupid, and I think people can tell when their voices are really being heard and when they're not. And so voting has become a pretty uninspiring thing to participate in. There's a not that much of a choice at the ballot box, not to say that Democrats and Republicans are the same, but what we saw with Sanders was people want much more of a choice. And also that once you have elected people, your capacity to direct what those people do to get the things that you want are pretty limited. And so I think we really have a democratic crisis in the U.S., which has been driven by the increase in inequality, which creates this big divide between wealthy people and their institutions and the rest of us in terms of exerting political influence. That's a long way of saying, I think, the big choices offered by the recent elections have actually inspired people to get more involved in the political process. And it shows that actually young people are quite willing to be politically engaged when there's something real to engage with. And let me just emphasize the difference between the Republican states and counties on encouraging youth voting or uh, youth voting or discouraging youth voting and uh, what happens in the in the blue states. Uh, We record our show in California, California, the state organizes voter registration on college campuses and sets in the counties set up polling places, often in the dorms, always on campus Uh, in the red states and in the Republican counties. It's the exact opposite. They make it hard for students to register, and they they move the polling places away from the campuses, so it's hard to get there. It's a deliberate strategy of the Republicans, part of their general approach to politics. I think we call it vote suppression. Yeah, and I would add that for young people of color, this is even worse because they're both targeted by the sorts of policies you're describing and targeted by policies that are designed to keep Black people from voting. Um, And we saw that in North Carolina most dramatically in the last election. But young people of color face um, incredible obstacles just in voting. And so you'll hear people talk about how there is not enough polling in those demographics, how the number of voters is small, hard to collect data. Well, there's a reason for that. um, And, you know, it's it's intentional. Last question. I I understand why the people voting socialists now are young, 
But why are the socialists they are voting for so old? Bernie is, I guess, 75. Jeremy Corbyn in Britain is 68. Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France is 65. You know, Bernie's socialism is pre-60s. Is, is there anybody of the younger generation who can pick up the banner of socialism? Yeah, it's funny. We are seeing these older candidates who are coming out of an era when the left parties in different countries had a stronger commitment to labor and had a stronger commitment to redistribution, even to socialism in the case of the Labor Party, though not in the case of the Democratic Party. And these are folks who really just held on to their politics as their parties changed around them, as you saw sort of Blairite Labor Party and so forth. And then that baton is sort of being picked up by young people who are experiencing the failure of that interim neoliberal period. Something that I think will be really challenging is that these older candidates, you know, badly need to be succeeded by a next generation. And there's kind of a missing generation of radicals in the middle. So young people have to pick up that baton pretty fast. And I think they are. You're seeing the growth of organizations like DSA. You're seeing you're seeing great candidates like Pramila J. Paul. But there's a lot of work to do very fast. And I think that's going to be a big challenge. Sarah Leonard, she wrote about young voters and old socialists for the New York Times op-ed page. Read more of her work at thenation.com. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Henry David Thoreau has always been a hero of the left in America. He pretty much invented civil disobedience by going to jail to protest the Mexican War, and he was a fierce and radical opponent of slavery. But Thoreau has taken a beating lately, especially after The New Yorker published a devastating attack on him. For comment, we turn to Jedediah Purdy. He teaches law at Duke University, and he's the author most recently of the book After Nature. He wrote about Thoreau for the nation's book issue. Jed Purdy, welcome to the program. Hi, John. Glad to talk to you. Well, let's start with that piece in The New Yorker. Tell us about it. So Catherine Schultz, who's a wonderful critic, as it happens, won a Pulitzer recently, um, wrote this 2015 takedown of Thoreau in The New Yorker, which she titled Pond Scum, uh, referring to Walden Pond. Um, She called Thoreau narcissistic. She called him pinched and selfish. She said he was as parochial as he was egotistical, and May getting beyond the man to the work, she described Walden as unnavigable, incoherent, and fundamentally adolescent. Her take was that Thoreau was basically a damaged person and a bad writer who didn't make sense and who fundamentally had the problem that he pretended to be self-reliant and solitary while being involved in a social world that he never acknowledged and so bequeathed Americans a kind of juvenile um, ideal of self-reliance that we're still having trouble getting over. Sort of a cogent analysis of some uh, deformities in American culture, but I think actually quite wrong as a take on Thoreau. Well, I want to start by talking about Thoreau's political engagements. First of all, 
as I remarked in the opening, he was a fierce and and active opponent of slavery, a radical abolitionist. What do we know about that? Just as you say, Thoreau, and interestingly, Thoreau's whole family. I wish he'd written about this in Walden. His sisters, uh, one in particular, were all. Um, on the leading edge of American abolitionism in Concord, which was sort of like the Berkeley of (laughs) of the 1830s and 1840s, constantly pressing the local um, abolitionist and cultural societies towards stronger and stronger stances against slavery. Uh, And Thoreau himself hosted one of the annual gatherings of the Concord Anti-Slavery Society while he was living at Walden. And from that Walden cabin that we sometimes associate with isolation, self-emancipated person and escaped slave from Kentucky actually addressed the crowd, which is an amazing thing to reflect on. And after John Brown's failed insurrection at Harper's Ferry, Thoreau, against the advice of his respectable friends, was one of the first to defend him um, and gave speeches in Concord and and Boston. Uh, He began the speech in Boston with this amazing phrase, to my mind. He said, the reason Frederick Douglass is not here today is the reason why I am, which I, I have to say, however you feel about the idea of the privilege check is about as specific and snapping and morally alert a way of saying I'm here because I can be and some people can't um, as, as, as I can imagine. Uh, he sat down and spent evenings with Frederick Douglass, whom he brought to Concord uh, for the first time with John Brown himself before Brown's raid. Um, helped to smuggle a member of John Brown's uh, group north to Canada, which could have got him jailed if if not hung as a co-conspirator. So he was uh, he was in it deep, you could say. He was in it deep uh, with African Americans in slavery. Where did he stand with Native Americans, the other great non-white group in North America at the time? Well, he was deeply interested in them, for one thing filled journals with notes on Wampanoag uh, language and culture, sought out conversations with Native Americans who knew the old stories and and skills, reflected in Walden on um, the evidence in the soil in arrowheads and, and other remnants of people who'd been there before. I don't think you can say that he had the same level of political awareness of the place of displacement and genocide in American history that he had of the place of slavery in in his own time. But he was, I think it's fair to say he was non-racist and deeply engaged in his relation to Native Americans. American culture in Thoreau's day was deeply gendered. What about Thoreau and women? Thoreau in his life as a political person, as a writer, just as a human being, took an enormous amount of sustenance and guidance and inspiration from the women in his family and the women in Concord. And not only, as I said, in a, in a kind of nurturant sense, the, the deep point, I think, is that he never really found a way in his writing to acknowledge those relationships or to acknowledge a lot of the other 
social and institutional and material relationships that were that were actively contributing to making him who he was and making his practice of dissent as sharp and charismatic as it was. And he writes very powerfully about being an individual, about conscience, about dissent. Um, and in his life, he learned to do those things and learned to say those things from relationships, including deeply respectful ones with very strong women. But he didn't find ways to write about those and incorporate them into the literary persona that he passed down. The most devastating critique of Thoreau for a lot of people is that while he lived at Walden, he brought his laundry home to his mother. What is the story there? Yeah. Um, well, here's the story. During the time that he lived at Walden, Thoreau remained an active member of the community at Concord. That's why he hosted the Anti-Slavery Society's um, annual gala at the cabin. And he also re remained an economic member of his household, which meant that he was coming home to do repairs. He was working as a handyman in Concord and handing over a share of his wages to um, his mother to manage the expenses of the household. Uh, he was participating in the life of the house and the life of the community. And part of that was sharing in the gender division of labor that was universal at the time. Um, so I think if there's a failing in Thoreau that the laundry affair indicates, it's again that he didn't find a way to write about himself as a person of conscience and discernment and a spokesperson for the vulnerable and marginal and outcast, while also talking about himself as an, a member of a community and a household and a family. That is something he never quite figured out how to do. On the other hand, um, he died young by our, by our measure in his, uh, in his early 40s. What do you say to the view that Thoreau wanted to escape from other people by moving to the woods? What, what exactly was the point of those two years at Walden? And what was the point of the book, which, after all, was subtitled A Life in the Woods? Yeah. On one level, he went to Walden to develop a point of view and, and try to grow as a writer, because he was a writer foremost, and that's why we know who he was. The fact that he was a writer, um, I think, reveals something about what he wanted from other people. Um, no one who writes about being alone as often or as with as powerful feeling as Thoreau did is really satisfied being alone. Writing is, I think, always a bid to bring your mind closer to the minds of other people. Maybe not many other people, though Thoreau wanted to be widely read. Certainly to some other people, it's an effort to, to make yourself intelligible. And often it expresses the underlying sense that that's not easy. Thoreau says early in Walden that there couldn't be any greater miracle than to see through each other's eyes for a moment. Um, and I think he felt that as a person actually very intensely. Um, he seems to have prized friendship, but not always been good at it. Um, he loved the company of children. He found them easier to be with than adults. Um, he seems to have been a, a sensitive, um, even a little 
even a little brittle, but also had a very strong sense of his own integrity. So I guess, I guess he wanted very much to be connected with other people, but on terms that felt genuine to him. And he found that he often felt alone um, in the company of others. And in some ways, you might even say that when he went off to be with himself, he was in some ways preparing himself to, uh, to try again at connecting with people on, on better terms. And uh, on one level, a lot of his political work was an attempt to imagine what a national community would look like where the terms of people's connection was less unequal and less violent and less exploitative. Um, so there was a kind of constant tacking back and forth between rejection and coming closer in Thoreau's relation to other people and his writing as a human being and his politics. Uh, and he never entirely resolved those, but I think a lot of the energy in the writing actually comes from um, the force of the, of the movements back and forth. Thoreau understood that the political was personal, but he had strong feelings about that. Mm, yes. One way of putting why he went to Walden, the question you asked a little while ago, was to try to take stock of his life and ask what he needed and what needed him, what responsibilities and debts he had, and what kinds of entanglements he couldn't get out of. And he decided there and in the rest of his work that this thing called America was one thing that he couldn't get out of, that much as he would have liked to excuse himself from the injustices of his country, he couldn't, that they touched him, they got under his skin, they were part of him, and that he had to do something about them because he couldn't get away from them. So there was something self-regarding at the core of Thoreau's political ethics, um, but also relentlessly honest. He would have liked to be able to excuse himself from the struggles of his time, but he also saw clearly that he couldn't do that, and so he had to turn and face them instead. Jedediah Purdy, he wrote about Thoreau for the Nation book issue. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Jed. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. That's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about L.A. versus the Olympics and the groups in Los Angeles trying to stop the city from bringing the Olympics in 2024. That's this week on Dave Zirin's new Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. 
and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.